Um, it's, uh, it sounded a little manlier here than normal, and uh, we're grateful for all you ladies who are here as well. Uh, we're so excited about all the guys doing here at our church. And for you who are Brook kids who would normally be downstairs, I have an assignment for you. And so you guys should all have a piece of paper if you don't have one. Eddie, uh, our lead usher, you raise your hand, you can get one to you or a pen. Um, so Brook kids, this is what I want you guys to do. During this lesson, I want you to draw out what I'm talking about. I want you to put it in picture form. So if you hear things, you want to draw a picture according to what I'm saying. And I would love to, for you to ask whoever brought you as a parent, or family member, or friend, to post that picture on our Facebook page so that other people can see what it's like. And then we'll use it. We'll, we'll share that with other people. So go ahead and do that as, as I start talking. You can be writing. We want to see your creative interpretation of my sermon. And sometimes in the past when we've done this, the caricatures of me are especially pretty fun to see. So uh, they're not always very forgiving either. Um, as Jeremy mentioned, we've got 85 or so of women at our women's retreat this weekend. And uh, yesterday we had a baseball games at Bell Park with uh, dozens of people from the brook there, <clears throat> coaching kids, kids in the league, helping out, supporting the, the family there and trying to get to know people. Um, I think about all the things taking place here at the church. And I realize, you know, God, God's got a good thing going here. He's got a good thing going here. I was with some uh, pastors this past week, and I was sharing with them just some of the things that are happening here at the church. And the week before that, I was training church planters, people who are hoping to start churches one day. Um, I get to do this about twice a year. I train uh, people, teach them what we've learned in our own story, in our own journey. And it never, never ceases, ceases to amaze me how when I talk about our last three and a half, almost four years here now as a church, I'm just in awe of what God has done. Um, and if you're newer to the church, you're just getting a glimpse of some of the things. And I think sometimes we can, we can zero in on the different details and we forget to zoom out and look around and see everything. And, and every year in October when it's our church anniversary, we do a lot of zooming out and celebrating all that's taken place. But as I was thinking about the good things we see God doing here, I think all of us should understand that when God is doing something good, uh, the enemy wants to break that apart. And as I was thinking about our DNA uh, study that Jeremy was talking about, our groups that we're going to have, they're going to be going through the book of Philippians. And my thought today was to introduce you guys to the book of Philippians. And as I was thinking through that, you realize that in the book of Philippians, it was a letter to people who lived in a city called Philippi, and they had a good thing going there. God was doing something amazing in that church. And then they faced adversity. And, you know, sometimes when we're preaching here, we preach reactively. We talk about things that we see taking place in our society. We want to address those things. And other times when I'm preaching, I preach proactively. And today's a proactive sermon. I'm not seeing all this conflict and adversity in our church. But you know what I am reminded of when I read the Bible is that that's going to confront us. And it does, and it does at different times. We're going to face challenges as a, as a church family, as individual households and homes and lives. And what I want us to do is see what God wants us to do in light of challenging circumstances in life that affect us as a church. As I mentioned, the city of Philippi, man, when you read their story in the book of Acts, it's amazing. The church starts because this woman named Lydia had a vision for what God could do. Paul and, his, and those with him, Silas, they shared the good news of Jesus with this woman, Lydia, and she put her faith in Jesus. And Lydia said, I want you guys to use my house as a home, home base for the mission here in this city. 
And then Paul and his, his companions went out, and they, uh, they delivered a, a young girl who had a de- demon inside of her. They cast out that demon, and then those who owned this girl got mad about that because now their, their mode of income and different uh, tactics has been exposed. Then they arrest Paul and Silas, and God miraculously delivers them out of prison. The jailer comes to Christ. God's doing a beautiful thing in Philippi. And then we come to the book of Philippians where Paul's writing a letter. And essentially what it tells me and you is to expect adversity when we're trying to do God's work. Now some of you may, may be very new to the Christian faith. Maybe some of you are still trying to understand what it means to be a Christian. You're exploring what God's truths say. And one thing you're going to find is sometimes when you're trying to get your life in order and follow Jesus, adversity comes your way. Challenges come your way. And you may be tempted to think, life is easier when I'm not following Jesus. Let me get rid of that and get back to what I was doing. And I want to plead with you to say that is not the truth. Yeah, there might be challenges that come as a follower of Jesus, but life is better with Jesus. Is better with Jesus. And that's what Paul wants to tell God's people here in this letter to the Philippians. And he tells them, hey, he says, look, when you are following Jesus, expect challenges from the outside and from within. From the outside, he says this to them. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He's saying you're going to suffer because people outside are not down with what you're doing when you're trying to follow Jesus. And then he goes on to say in Philippians 3, 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. He says, look out for those who want to get you off track. So he says, you know, there's going to be challenges from, from the outside. But then he says, there's also challenges from within. Philippians 4, he says, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche. These are two women. He says, I entreat them to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. He's saying, I see division taking place inside the church. And he says, and just charge and encourage these ladies to, to reconcile whatever friction they've got. And so Paul is saying, look, when we're trying to do God's work, we're going to face challenges. And the reason is we live in a broken world and we're broken people, aren't we? we? We bring our mess to the table. And when I think about the good thing God has for us here at the church, I'm encouraged because... We, we want this to be a place where we bring our mess to the table. A place where we are just understanding that we are a broken people. But we want to deal with our mess and our brokenness by bringing it to Jesus. And letting the good news of Jesus affect our lives. And so that, that's, that's a good thing we've got going when that's taking place. But as I mentioned, man, our, our human nature threatens oftentimes the unity that God has established and you know, as a pastor, I've been a pastor here at the Brook for uh, almost four years, and then we were about a year working on it before we came to the Brook. And I was a pastor for an associate for about five years and, uh, before that. And so about 10 years now as a pastor, and I, I, one thing that strikes me oftentimes, I feel like unity in the church is so delicate, and yet it's so necessary. It's necessary because in, in Ephesians 4, God says that the Holy Spirit is the one who unifies us. And our job is to walk in that unity. So it's necessary because it's inherent to who the church is. We're a church together. But it's also delicate in that when we bring our, our, our pride, our selfishness into relationships, 
it feels so weak and things can fall apart so easily. But I'm encouraged that God loves his church more than I do, more than, more than we do. Um, so because of that, unity is important. And so thinking about God's plan, thinking about his plan for unity, I want us to talk about this. The things that threaten unity often lie within our own hearts, and it's our own selfishness. It's our own self-focused that, uh, nature that oftentimes pulls us away from God. And the way we get us back on the right track is by looking at Jesus, the, the, the selfless one, and his motto for life. The way he laid down his life for us. And ultimately, he gave us all that he was so that he could make us all that we could become as followers of Jesus. So with that being said, I want us to find ourselves in the book of Philippians chapter 2. If you got a Bible there. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? And if you ain't got a Bible, there's one in a pew in front of you. It's towards the end of the Bible, and I did not get the page number for you guys. So can someone who has uh, the pew Bible, would you tell me what page number is Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 in? 980? Thank you guys. 980. This passage drops some amazing theology, guys. And I, I hope that you feel compelled to understand that Our belief about God affects our lives. It deals with our pride. It deals with our selfishness. And it unifies us as a church. And this is what Philippians chapter 2 says. And uh, Jeremy Riggs read that for us earlier so well. And I'm going to read it again to get it in front of us. That's what God's word says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Say my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, say nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That ain't easy, is that? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every, 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 every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, this passage is amazing to me. Paul starts it out by telling them to complete his joy. He tells them there in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He says, in light of all that God has done for us, in light of all that Jesus has done to save us by dying on a cross for our sins, he says, complete my joy by doing this. He says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Hear the repetition there. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. It's, It's language of unity. And what Paul is saying here is like, I want you guys to be unified. Because I know, he says, I know you're suffering. I know you're struggling. I know there's people from the outside that are getting down on you, dogging you for being a follower of Jesus. I know that your own selfishness within wants to rise up and cause division. But he says, man, give me joy 
by being unified. And some might say, man, is, is, but isn't he being selfish by telling them complete his joy? Is Paul saying, hey, make me joyful? Is, is that a selfish thing to ask? And, you know, you think about this. The very issue he's confronting is selfishness. So maybe something different is going on here. And, and so what Paul is saying, I think, is this. He's saying when our focus is on Jesus, when we have the same love for Jesus, same love for each other, we have this like-mindedness, then we can be unified. And Paul says when you're unified, when we as a church are living life together like that, that brings Paul joy. And so his joy isn't selfish because it's rooted in our own joy. Let me back that up for you. Paul's basically what he's saying is when you're loving Jesus, that's the most joyful life. So he says, when I see you doing that, I'm filled with joy. So he says, fill me with joy then. And love Jesus and love each other. And that's what he's getting at here. He's saying, be united in your love for each other. Because the real concern is when we're selfish. It's when we are selfish. Now, you know, when I think about selfishness, man, I, I, uh, I look in the mirror and I struggle with that. It's easy to be very self-focused, isn't it? to let your world revolve around you in everything you do. And, and what this passage is telling us is that that, that kind of self-focusedness can be very divisive. It can be very dangerous. It can be very dangerous. And also it can be very deceptive. Sometimes we're selfish and we don't know it. We're self-focused and we don't realize it. You know, sometimes even our own viewpoints. And, you know, I, I, like, I like following the news. I, I just try to keep up to be with what's going on in our politics and our society and and there's so much selfishness that 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 drives oftentimes the viewpoints of our country we think about what's good for us and not concerned about what those implications are for other people and no matter where you are in your own political views and societal views what's common in much of our culture is a focus on me if it was good for me then I'm going for it even if it's not good for you and when we see here is Paul saying, be careful of that. He says, do nothing, verse 3, nothing from selfish ambition. That, that's, that's what that is. It's selfish ambition or conceit. Sometimes our, our, our self-focused mindset is viewed in our own city. We see the ills in our world, the brokenness. And I know if, if you're like me, sometimes the distance between me physically and the, the, the horrors in our city that distance oftentimes makes me apathetic sometimes. Or I'm just like, you know, it's bad, but I, I, don't, I don't feel, sometimes I don't even pray because I'm self-focused. Paul's saying that's, that's not what Jesus wants for us. Sometimes it's we, when we are unconcerned about decisions we make and the consequences they have on other people. You see, there are varieties of things in our world, in our lives, that are very... Uh, stealthily selfish among us. It's, it's stealth. It flies under the radar. And what, what, what we see here is this call to not let it fly under the radar, but let God do something about it. So while selfishness is divisive and deceptive, it can be dealt with. And this is where the heart of our passage comes, guys. Paul says when we keep our eyes on Jesus, he exposes how we become self-focused and makes us Jesus-focused. Now, if you remember as a kid playing Simon Says, um, you guys remember that, Simon Says? Any of you kids play Simon Says? You play, all right, good, good. When you're playing Simon Says, the person who's leading 
says, Simon says, raise your right hand. And you guys raise your right hand. Simon says, raise your left hand. Simon says, put your hands down. Put your hands back up. Oh, so we, got, we got one who does it, right. And, and so the way it goes is, if Simon doesn't say it, you don't do it. And you know, when we look at the Bible, we see that God has a plan for us. And his voice, his word matters most. And yet there are so many competing voices and ideas and opinions in our world that say, hey, no, go, go be selfish. It's about you. Do what you want. Make it about you. It's okay about the, the people, the casualties along the side. Because it's all about you. Simon doesn't say that. <laughs> what Jesus has modeled for us and demonstrates for us is a life that dies to ourself. And so when the Bible speaks, God's saying, this is what I'm telling you to do. And don't let competing voices get you off track. And in this moment, Paul drops one of the most amazing theological statements about Jesus in all the Bible. And this is what I want you to see here. Sometimes when we think of theology, we think, oh, boring. But it's not boring. It's life-giving. See, the truths of who Jesus is and what God has done affects our lives in the realest of ways. Because selfishness and pride is very real. We deal with it every day. It's something that confronts us daily. And the, the answer to that is a theological understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So theology is for life. And Paul here talking about division and potentials for, for disunity among God's people, he says, let me tell you where you to look to find answers to those problems. He says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. This is why in verse 5, or verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What Paul is saying here is this, guys. He says, when we need to learn how to be selfless, we look to the one who was that in the most perfect of ways, and that's Jesus. He says here to have Jesus' mindset among us. Well, what was Jesus' mindset? How humble was Jesus really? Well, he says that, who, that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Three times he says Jesus was in the form of God, in the form of a servant, verse 7, and in the form of man, verse 8. And to say that he's in the form of is not to say that's not that he appeared to be but wasn't, but that he actually was these things. He was God. He was a servant. He was a man on this earth. Now to understand this, this is an important thing. To say that Jesus was God on earth is significant. Jesus is the God of this universe and of eternity. You see, there was a time where all that we know and see in creation did not exist. There was a time where it was just God. God is infinite and eternal, no beginning and no ending. And we believe what the Bible teaches that there is one God who has demonstrated himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son, and he's eternal. 
One of the church fathers, Athanasius, says that what this passage tells us is that there was never a time in which Jesus was not. Hear that. There was never a time in which Jesus was not. He is eternal God. He's the one who put this earth into existence by speaking it. John 1.1 says, all things were made through him. How much? All things? Everything Jesus made. Colossians 1.16 says, by him all things were created through him and for him. So not only did Jesus create everything, but all of creation was made to give him glory. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So not only did Jesus create this world, not only is the world created for his own pleasure, but he sustains this world by the word of his power in this moment. If Jesus would, would withdraw his word or his power from this earth right now, it would fall into pieces. That's the eternal son of God. When Paul says that he emptied himself and came to this earth, that is the greatest display of selflessness and humility that we could ever imagine. God walked on earth. God chose to enter into the skin and bones of his creation. That's selfless because the reason he did it Because that was God's plan to save you and to save me. Jesus, indeed, is the most selfless, sacrificial one ever. As we mentioned earlier, tomorrow we celebrate Memorial Day. And and, uh, we are thankful for those who serve in the military, but especially we remember those who gave their lives to uh, accomplish our freedoms here as a country. And uh, we are praising God for those brave men and women. And we are so thankful for them. We enjoy our freedoms in this country, don't we? And we surely do it. And so when we think of sacrifice, right away I think of soldiers. I think of those who've laid down their lives for the benefit of another person. And Jesus is the ultimate example of laying down his life. And Jesus' life accomplishes our freedom. But our freedom from sin our freedom from hell, our freedom to love God. See, what makes Jesus' blood, the ability, gives it the ability to save us from sin is because he is God. Now, there are all kinds of oils in the world. You cook with vegetable oil. You, you cook with corn oil. But you'll never put vegetable oil in your car, will you? That's a different kind of oil. That's a motor oil because vegetable oil doesn't have the capacity to power a vehicle. In the same way, only Jesus' blood has the capacity to save us from sin because he is God. And so when we battle being selfish and being prideful and making the world revolve around us, take one glance at Jesus who laid it all down to save you and me. See, that's what Paul says here in verse Eight, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus had to empty himself. And that doesn't mean he ceased to be God ever. 
See, there's this mysterious thing that took place on this earth where Jesus maintained his divine nature, but also embraced a human nature and its human limitations. You see, Jesus had to be able to be tired to die for us, to grow hungry. Jesus needed a haircut, for crying out loud. He had toenails that needed clipping. And yet he was God. And he emptied himself and chose to allow himself, his divine attributes, to be in these limited body so that he could indeed die as God. Amazing. Amazing. And he did this to save you and save me. Maybe you come today and you're just trying to understand what the Christian faith is about. This is it right here. You see, our, our selfishness and our pride is, is part of a greater problem in each of us. And that's we're sinful people. And you know and I know that you are a sinful person. I am. We've all broken God's commands. We've broken his laws. We've, we've rebelled against God. And the Bible says the penalty for doing that is hell. It's eternal separation from God. But there is a God who loves us enough to come to this earth to die in your place and in my place so that if you believe in him, you can be forgiven of all this, your past stuff, your secret stuff, the stuff you're going to do tomorrow. There's a God who would die for you to bring forgiveness so that you don't have to suffer that punishment of hell because Jesus suffered it for you on the cross. And when you put your faith in him, you can be forgiven and have eternal life. You turn from who you once were, you repent, that's what the Bible calls it. See, this is at the heart of Jesus' sacrifice, is to give you the ability to know him, to know God. What did Jesus' death ultimately accomplish for himself? Look at verse 9. Therefore, God, through Jesus' resurrection, has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, through Jesus' resurrection, he demonstrates that he is Lord of all. He could be your master and my master. So these amazing truths about who Jesus was and what he did, backing up, reminds us, Paul talks about this in the context of selfishness and the potential for disunity in the church So let me summarize this for us, family. When we come together, God has brought a good thing together here at the the brook. He's doing something sweet among us. And I know next Sunday when many of the women come back, they're going to tell about great stories. And I know when we go, we're going to tell about God's faithfulness even with us today, this morning, and the week between this Sunday and next. And we get to gather together and brag about God and how amazing he is. And God wants us unified in that. But as we come together, we have our own battles and our own struggles. And what we need to do is look to Jesus, the selfless, sacrificial one, and say, Jesus, help me live like you did. Help us as a family live as you did. Loving one another, laying down our lives to show the world of what kind of God that you are and what the church is like. And that's what we want to do as the summer approaches us. I know we've got crazy schedules over the summer. Some of us are beyond vacation. I'm going to be on Liberia on Thursday or Friday. I leave Thursday. And so I know our world, you know, different things are going on. You got parties, you got graduations. 
But in the midst of all of it, let's not lose sight of what it means to be the church, to be united because of Jesus, to be selfless when we're offended and when we're hurt, that we come to Jesus and we come to one another and be a family together. You know, our desire is that all of us would be part of a DNA group that Jeremy mentioned earlier. There are groups of three, men with men, women with women. And what we'd love for you to do in those groups of three, maybe four if it needs to be, is study the Bible together. There's that reading plan in that orange sheet. Six times gather together, you know, from one week to the next. You have a plan of reading from Philippians 1, then Philippians 2, things like that. And then you come together and you discuss what God's teaching you. You, you let your heart lay bare before your brothers or before your sisters. And we sharpen one, in, one another as we're unified together. And so that's what we would love to see happen this summer. And so if you're not uh, connected to a DNA group already, yeah, talk with Jeremy. Email us at connect at the Find a, a group to be connected with so that even though the, the summer is different rhythms, we stay unified. We, we stay together as a church family. I'm grateful for Jesus because he doesn't leave us to our own devices trying to figure out how to live this life. He's demonstrated it for us. He laid down his life to make us the church. And while unity is delicate, it's also necessary. So let's be ready for all that God puts our way, and let's be the church that is powerful for God's glory and makes a difference in our community. Let me pray, church family. God, I thank you, Lord, for uh, the words of Paul today. I thank you, Lord, for the message of Jesus and how he laid down everything he was, God, for us so that we together could be one in him. And so, Lord, I pray for each one who's here today. I pray for the one who doesn't know you today. As they search out the Christian faith, God, I pray that they would see how, how Jesus is the one that they are longing for and need. And for all of us, God, who do know you, God, keep us unified in you. Keep our focus on Jesus, imitating him each step of the way. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you, God, for directing our paths, and we want to align our hearts with yours. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.